Written shortly after his directorial debut, Thief, in 1981, Heat would be a passion project that would finally hit theatres some 14 years after its draft, and some six years after Mann had already adapted the story for his 1989 TV movie, L.A. Takedown. Heat remains one of his most profitable and critically well-regarded movies of the entire Mann career. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish. I'm Andy Blockley. And welcome to Opera Omnia. Welcome back to episode number five of season one of Opera Omnia, the show that looks exclusively season on season, dedicating one director right to the forefront while myself and my colleagues scrutinise their back catalogues for the accolades, the highs, the lows. I'm one of your hosts, Duncan McLeish, and I'm joined, of course, with my co-host, the fantastic Andy Blockley. How are you doing, Andy? Hello mate, yeah I'm good, I'm ready to do Heat, which is kind of the one we've been building towards since episode one. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the one that could be the great dethroner, this one could uh, this one could remove Thief from the top spot. I'm interested to see where you land at the end, um, I'd, I will be surprised if anyone is surprised by what I say at the end of this uh, review. Yeah. I've been looking well, for this just, is just, the, tell, what, just tell the listeners what you've spent nine hours of your, of your time doing this week. In the last week, yeah, watching Heat three times. Um, I told you before, I, I genuinely think like Heat's a movie I've not seen maybe in a couple of years, but up until that point, I, I used to watch it maybe once or twice a year, like every year. Generally because it's quite a long movie um, and I have issues with sleep. And sometimes it's good to shove on something which is quite long. I do. I used to do the same with the the Zodiac movie, the Fincher movie, because it's oh, like yeah. three hours long as well. It's good to sometimes just if you can't sleep, dedicate a, a three hour chunk of time towards a uh, to, towards one movie uh, and sit and watch it to completion. And he always kind of kind of caught that 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 kind of special time for me of uh, it's like two in the morning. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Uh, I need something to take me through at five so then I can at least start to get myself ready for work and shove heat on. And then you've got Pacino and De Niro and you're a safe pair of hands. So, um, Had you seen this one recently? How, how long has it been since you've seen Heat? A few years. I um, I bought the Blu-ray when I first bought the Blu-ray player, but I never got around to watching it on Blu-ray. Um, so yeah, it's been probably three or four years maybe since I've last seen it. Ah, right. Um, and I did, uh, I'd forgotten quite a lot. There was loads of little subplots and stuff that I completely forgot. And I think after watching Thief and Manhunter so soon, um, I realised just how much he takes from both of those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. There's, there, I mean, the, the like I said at the, the introduction there, um, he is written pretty much after Thief finishes. Like, he leaves that project, writes about 180-page draft work for, for the movie Heat, which is loosely based, <laughs> loosely based on um, some real life events, a real, a real criminal, um, 
and you know his story that that man had somehow got and in, uh, involved with and you know found out um done a bit of investigation and adapted it and it, it kind of didn't go anywhere until after manhunter he that's why there's such a jump between manhunter and last of the mohicans he then goes okay. off and does some tv stuff but he decides that he wants to do heat next and he adapts it down and does um early takedown which is the 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 tv movie version of this um i think probably because i don't think he ever thought he was going to be on that level again you know what i mean like okay. on a high level to put forward his vision of heat and um yeah i, mean, I kind of get the impression this is one where they kind of slackened off the reins a little bit on him and let him kind of do what he wanted with regards to the time yeah i think um, i think last of the mohicans maybe gave him a lot of good graces with with uh, studios in Hollywood because you know yeah. that movie made a lot of money and was very well yeah. regarded uh, critically so I think they're like that this, this Michael Mann guy maybe he can make a film maybe what we maybe, should do is maybe let him if do he wants it. to make a three hour film maybe we should let him do that yeah and, <laughs> and <laughs> most of his other ones are aren't they they just chopped down so much yeah chopped like about an hour and a half out of some of the movies we've already reviewed for this show um, but I, I love the fact that if you're ever going to give Michael Mann like free reign to do, you know, a three-hour movie. Um, you know, th- th- you you maybe feel less uncomfortable about it when you hear that Pacino and De Niro are going to be in it, because um, I mean yeah, they are widely good. regarded in the American Film Institute as the number one and number two greatest actors of all time. So yeah, I mean De Niro's De Niro is literally my favorite actor ever, and has been probably for about the last twenty years. Um, and also in 1995, they were so fucking hot then too. Oh, know, yeah. This was really like the, the two, like you say, the number one and number two anyway now, but at the time even more so, like they're in so much stuff. Getting them to on screen together was just one of those. I mean, I don't know how much hype there was around this film because I don't think I would have seen it when it first came out. When, it was a huge hype because they were going to be... insane. Yeah, first time they were going to be sharing the screen together, like scenes together, and that was what was... Yeah. That was what was huge about it is that De Niro and Pacino had never been in, you know, um, they, you know they'd been in the same franchise, Godfather, um, but yeah. had never had never shared this same scene together. And the fact that these two actors really actually only share about five minutes screen time in total uh, mm. together and and heat though. But those scenes are, and we're going to get into them, but they are fucking phenomenal. Um, so some information on Heat before we just stroke the celluloid cock of this to, to death <laughs> um, so it, it does clock in about the three hour mark, it came out in 1995 it came out in December it would be a fucking great movie to watch just before Christmas oh, yeah. I love that idea, written and directed by Michael Mann, starring just a, a who's who of great actors and actresses from the time period Al Pacino it's insane I'd forgotten people like Danny Trejo and Ashley Judd and uh, just these little small parts are in there Val Kilmer before Val Kilmer became shite um, and crazy Uh, Val Kilmer's in here John Voight Uh, Tom Noonan comes back Uh, uh, the the Tooth Fairy has a a, a very small role in this one Uh, but it's Ted Levine uh, fresh off his work as Buffalo Bill um, and Silence of the Lambs so you know just some great great names attached to this um, and the story kind of revolves uh, without going into like huge plot synopsis because it is quite a long movie the story kind of centres on these these two individuals 
won a police officer um, who, I, I mean, recently at the, the, at the what do you call it, the, the 30th anniversary show yeah. um, for, for the movie, you know, Pacino even came out and said himself, I played him as a cokehead. You know, as a speed yeah. freak, which you can see in this movie. Um, yeah. I was like, I'm glad you clarified that, but we all knew it. Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't need to be said. It's just for the people that are a bit naive. Went, oh, really? Oh, it's like, yeah. yeah he's on. overacting Obvious. a bit. <laughs> people, don't, people don't, like, start singing to, to you know, see eyes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's obvious he's, you know, that's... it's, And it's a good way, really, as well, to explain why he is the way he is rather than just, oh, isn't he charismatic? You know, because you don't come across policemen like that in real life. You don't come across detectives that are that charismatic unless they're off their tits on something, you know. So it's it seems obvious, um, like you're saying, one of the things that didn't need to be said, but it is kind of funny. Um, I mean, maybe Al Pacino, that's his way of saying that he was doing coke at the time he was filming. I think he's maybe more likely. I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's fucking... He's, like, I can't wait to get into some of the scenes. Uh, but he's, he's this police officer, um, and he kind of stumbles, inadvertently, after this uh, this robbery happens on a, a security truck where some people are killed uh, he's dragged in with his special unit um, to, to basically track down who has robbed this this um, the security truck of some bonds and who, who has killed these security guards and this kind of leads him to the second prominent character who is this career criminal played by Robert De Niro who is meticulous on detail everything is meticulous on detail the planning, the way he assembles his crew um, and all the rest and you have these two immovable objects who on some level kind of respect each other um, mm. for their, their core values and what they actually there's kind of almost an honour between these two people even though one is a stone-cold killer um, and a thief and a criminal and the other one is this police officer who is an incredibly flawed character, you know exploits people um, isn't a great husband you know, all, all these things really married to the job both of them are married to what they what they love and that's the, the particular jobs that they have one being a thief and one being a cop and it's this ultimate showdown of of where these characters are going to end up ultimately because there's only one ending in this movie um and it's the best ending to pretty much any movie ever made um but you you have these these two characters interspersed in that you have family dynamics you have um, the stories behind the other criminals that are working within the gangs. You have a very, very young Henry Rollins, which is quite funny to see. Um, you're gonna slag him off later on. Oh my honest. god, that that haircut is fucking horrendous. Uh, his haircut, right? It's Henry Rollins is awful in literally every single thing I've ever seen him in. Like lies. Sons of Anarchy. Okay? <laughs> lies. He's fucking brilliant. He's not. He's awful, man. Like he can't act. Like in in Sons of Anarchy season two, I just laugh at him every time he comes on screen. I just think you look like a child in that stupid white kid's fucking school shirt. Like he's meant to be the leader of some fucking Aryan Brotherhood gang, and he's just a dweeb. But isn't that, the, that isn't that the point though? Like, without hey? going into a huge Sons of Anarchy thing, I think that might have been the point though. I think that's why he is dressed the way he is. Is that not all white supremacists are? 
thugs hooligans. No, but he's just he's just not. In, I just don't think the guy can act. I just think he's awful. I think he's terrible in this. He's uh, there's a couple of other films I've seen him in. I don't know why people pick him. I think he's just because he must be mates with people in Hollywood. He keeps getting these jobs. I think he's a. Oh, I'm going to have to disagree. I don't think he's particularly good in this movie, but maybe it's like the chase and stuff like that. He's fucking brilliant in that. Oh, well, anyway, right, uh, but um, we, we have a whole side plot with that. We have, like, De Niro trying to find love, so to speak, trying to bend his own rules that he has set in place, these rigid rules, to see if he can have it all. Can he, you know, can he commit the robbery of a lifetime? Can he get the money? Can he get the girl? And can he get away? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we've got a thing where he knows it, his, his career of doing that is coming to an end. So yeah. maybe he's kind of, he's tried to tie the two in together. I mean, what he should have done really, because he talks about this discipline of being mm-hmm. able to drop anything at a moment's notice. Go looking for love when you finish the heist, mate. I know you can't do <laughs> anything like that, and I know like you don't really pick when you fall in love with someone. But yeah, that's. I think that's the thing about it, and I think that like when we come on to the end, um, the end of this movie, there is something really clever about what happens in terms of the De Niro character and his following of his code, so to speak, of what becomes a priority and what isn't a priority to him, um, which I find like infinitely fascinating when watching the movie. Uh, so yes, that's basically that's what he's about. We have, I think there's three robberies that happened during the movie and it kind of covers this time span of from the first robbery to the, the, the kind of final crime and we follow all these different people. It's a hugely dense movie when it comes mm. to story and character development is key in this one because without the character development that he does and I would argue does really fucking well a movie of this length would just not have your attention um, I think you were spot on when you said coming back to watching this the things that jump out to you are how much this is like almost like a Frankenstein creation of previous Michael Mann works, it's like he has honed his craft, he's kind of worked at it out what he needs to do to make this movie it gets a great cast in place a great script a great story and like the the stars all align and what you get is is heat um yeah. if you look at the levels they went to as well and like the research of this film they they um they scoped out the bank like tom sizemore went into the bank and did a loan application like a freight pretend loan application so he could case the place like extensive weapons training for all of them mm-hmm. um to the point where they show the clip of Al Kilmer changing the magazine apparently to marine um, to marine trainees, basically saying this is how fast you need to change a clip. Mm-hmm. Um, they interviewed police. The wives interviewed the wives, uh, sorry, police and criminals. They like went and visited criminals in prison. The wives of the characters in the film interviewed the wives and you know girlfriends of prisoners and people that were, you know had done these kind of crimes. Like the, the the level of research that they made. And planning and and like physical training that they got all the actors to do, you don't get shit like that in films anymore. You nah. just don't. Nah, it's it's a it's almost a it's almost a dead craft. And I think the reason is kind of that that sort of thing has died out is that and I'm not saying that man doesn't do it with with all his projects, but you get this feeling that we're still within a time period where studios would have confidence to let people. Do, there's very few directors that can command that sort of 
that sort of kind of leeway to do things like that. Um, Scorsese's probably in that. J- you know, James Cameron, Tarantino. You know, th- th- that is a it's a small name pool of directors who can say, right, I want to do a movie like this, and I want my actors, actresses, and everyone involved with this project to to become this project to embody everything for authenticity. And yeah. you, you, like you say, you just don't get. If, if I'm a director pitching a crime movie to to Paramount. And I'm sitting down with him, and they're like, "Yeah, this story sounds pretty good. So, so what do you need from us?" And I'm like, "Well, I need sixty million dollars to shoot. Plus, we need to sit down with career criminals and extensively plan it. We need to close streets off in LA, downtown LA, to film scenes of robberies and all. You just that doesn't happen. It would never happen now. No. And it's kind of." In a lot of respects, it's what I think makes Heat such a like a captivating movie is it still happens in that weird time frame where where studios you know have a lot of money kicking around that they can they can do this and they can you know flood it out the 90s was a, a very weird decade for cinema like a really 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 weird decade for cinema and you got a lot of movies like heat becomes like almost the template for kind of crime thrillers or you know heist thrillers moving on from this point it almost reinvents the book and we get like a whole host of them towards the the late 90s and into the 2000s and beyond which all follow that kind of the heat template of the we're going to follow the cop and we're going to follow the criminal and we're going to follow their and then you know eventual yeah like when was point break was that after this point breaks just before this uh, okay, yeah, po- po- Point Break's early 90s. I want to say it's like 92 or 93. Um, okay. So, yeah, so this comes this comes after. Um, and, as, I mean, this is Michael Mann through and through. The colour screen for this movie all the way through is that kind of hueish blue over everything. You know, the guy is designed perfectly to... To film Ellie, he makes Ellie seem like that's why I was so excited when True Detective season two started releasing the kind of the advanced artwork and poster designs and all the rest yeah. with these neon lights in Ellie, and I was like, that this is going to Michael Mann, Michael Mann. That's you know that's what it is. It's Michael Mann, um, because he and is. That would have been an if, if, and that would have been an incredible series as well if that had been the first one that was out. I think we should just mention that. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's it suffers, it suffers badly because that first season that did come out is um, perfect <laughs> so yeah. yeah you would have thought too was absolutely fucking amazing wouldn't you if that's the only one you'd seen or if that one came out first. yeah i thought i i still i still to this day and i know a lot of people disagree with me i still think that two will eventually be reviewed by people years from now and seen for the flawed masterpiece it is. I think there's a lot yeah. that that show did right in season two that people just couldn't get behind because there wasn't a Matthew McConaughey character in it. Um, and there shouldn't have been. We've already done that. We should move on. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a few directors, in my opinion, that can capture L.A. Um, the way that someone like David Lynch or Michael Mann can, you know, they, they really, they really are like when they film it, you f- you feel you can, you feel like you can almost smell the pavement, um, and they, they do that incredibly well. The, the some of the the scenery and some of the shots are phenomenal. Um, but let's let's get into this, right? So um, I think the 
I think probably the best way to tackle this, because like I say, I could literally talk for about seven hours and not get tired of talking about just genuinely how much I think he is like a masterpiece from start to finish. But that is not my job. That is not my job. I have a co-host here. When you have a co-host, it's uh, to lighten the load. It's to, <laughs> to, to, to space things out. So Share I, it up. Yeah, I think the best thing to do is let's just focus on some of the elements that we really, really, really like about this movie and then we'll maybe move on to anything that we maybe don't like and yeah. then we can talk about performances, score, etc. So, Andy, tell me some of the things you really like about Heat. Start off, we're going, going chronological order, then the opening robbery, I think, is so fucking exciting. Um, we got that great introduction to Tom Sizemore, who I just fucking love, to be honest, in everything yeah. he does. Um, I don't think he's a very nice guy in real life. I know he's had a lot of fucking problems and stuff. Um, but the characters that he seems to play um, in this movie, he's another one like Natural Born Killers is another great one that I really like of his. He's just got this weird presence because he's almost got a bit of a baby face. Yeah. Um, but he's just got that look in his eye. And there's a scene later on in a cafe where um, they hit Wayne Grove, like bounce Wayne Grove's head off the table and, and like a kind of a big sort of trucker guy looks over. And one little look from Tom Sizemore and the guy just fucking looks away like I'm not, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> yeah, it's a chilling look. I mean, like, he and just kind of looks yeah. over his shoulder and you're like, I shouldn't be looking here, let's look away. Yeah, and if Tom Sizemore looked at me like that, you just fucking, you just remove yourself from that situation. <laughs> uh, so that's like a really good introduction to there. Obviously, there's a new guy on the team. Um, I imagine that happens, you know, it's a bit like with Ronan, you get a tight-knit team um, or a tight-knit group of people they've done this sort of stuff before and then you get one absolute bellend that just thinks you know I'm going to oh, I'll give this a try you know that's all you know it's like Michael Bean's character isn't it this Wayne Grow guy you know oh, if this turns out well I'll probably give you know give this a go again you think oh this isn't going to end well at all is it you can just fucking tell yeah um, and I get so angry when he shoots the guard because it just didn't need to happen and yeah, obviously I, I, you find that later on yeah I think that's a, that's why a serial I, killer yeah, it's, that's that's why I think that's what I think is brilliant about it is that you get that like from the moment you meet this guy, you know that if that there must be some extenuating circumstance, probably time based, that they've had to get this guy in to do this job. You know, they've run yeah. out of time. They need to get this guy in. They they sit him down. You've got like a, a core group of professional robbers and when you the, the funny thing about it is when you hear the backstory of the Val Kilmer character and the Tom Sizemore character they haven't always been successful until they met Macaulay until they met yeah. De Niro's character he's the one that plans everything meticulous and as a result these guys are doing well for themselves um, yeah, like De Niro says, I'm not, you know, doing Seven Elevens with the Born to Die or what's it? What is something to do? What's he Born to what's Die that? tattoos on your chest. Born to Die tattoo. You know, I'm not into that kind of shit. I'm into fucking meticulous. You know, he like it. He's like in Thief, isn't he? He's basically the same kind of character. He's he's absolutely precision. This guy. Yeah, totally yeah. precision. And they've had to make this compromise, so to speak, to get this guy in. And you can tell, like Tom Sizemore thinks he's talking too much, doesn't really like him, um, De Niro doesn't like him, and the robbery goes perfect, it goes completely to plan, but because he uses explosive to blow at the back doors, it deafens the guards. I mean, the guards yeah. can't hear, and this, like you, like you kind of started talking about, and I cut you off, um, it's, it, it's found out that, you know, Wayne grows up, he is a serial killer. 
Yeah, he's going to shoot that guy anyway because obviously they, they, they established that he can't hear and there is a real sort of four or five seconds of nothingness where he doesn't need to kill this guy. They're completely under control, these guys. One of them's wandering around completely shell-shocked. Yeah. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Like These guys are not going to resist. They're not going to try and stop you. Um, Wayne Grove just fucking shoots him just because he wants to um, and then they obviously they need to kill the others um, which is a real fucking shame because that just did not need to happen um, there's, there's, I mean there's great little realistic bits as well like just when the big truck smashes into the other truck and that kind of knocks it on its side they just cut the music dead for a couple of seconds mm-hmm. and just let that eerie silence of a car crash just happening kind of kick in which I think is really fucking effective Um uh, and then, yeah, like they say, it goes completely to plan apart from fucking Wayne Grove, who just completely fucks it all up. Um, they do escape. I mean, it, it goes well. You know, they just, that's what basically causes the heat, which is the name of the film. The heat would not be on them the way it is if they hadn't killed those guys. It would have just been a robbery. Al Pacino wouldn't be involved, would he? It's, it's the fact that they fucking killed three guards Yeah. Um, that brings the heat, and that's kind of where the name of the movie comes from. Um Obviously, they kind they kind of gonna they're gonna kill Wayne Grove. Um, he's you know he's fucked them over basically. He's, he's almost brought their careers to an end by pulling that trigger on that guard. So they try to kill him, um, but obviously he escapes. And I just love that whole fucking sequence. It's just great. It's probably the first twenty five minutes of the film, and it's just insanely compelling from the opening thirty seconds right up until that point where they're at the diner, and then it kind of dies off. You know, we, and we start to get into some of the characters at that point. Yeah, but fucking hell, what a strong opener of a movie! You and know, for some and movies, and for some movies, that's a third of the film gone. You know, if you've got a ninety-minute movie, it's fucking insane. I, the the pacing is key to this movie. It, like, it really does know when to start to build up the story and when to to pull it back and give you a bit of time to. And what I love about this is that that we follow the contrasting styles of of Pacino and De Niro and how they go about their work. Um, as soon as Pacino's brought into this, uh, he plays Lieutenant Vincent Hanna. As soon as Hanna gets involved with this, we find it very quickly that this is a man completely married to his job, fully committed. Even though it takes his toll, he lives for the hunt. Of criminals. Yeah. That's 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 what gets him up in the morning. That's what gets him off. That's his. That's his. You know, it's his his reason for being is this the, the thrill of of hunting down a criminal. And from the moment, I mean, he could have just as well have been the De Niro character, couldn't he? And he oh, could have I think just you been... could have easily. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of it. I think De Niro would have. I think the thing about this is, you, if you'd swapped these roles. I think they'd be just as interesting, albeit I think they would be totally different roles. You know, I mean, I mean, I think Pacino is not as understated as... Like, De Niro plays the role very understated. Macaulay comes across as this very calm and calculated, you know, figure. And De Niro has played characters that are wild at times as well, but he has also played those, you know, very, very serious, very calm, cool collected sort of customers I'm looking at movies like Casino and stuff like that where he you know he's he's playing those very level headed individuals um, that are put in extraordinary circumstances which are basically there to kind of test their their whole being Uh, Pacino is known for playing very animated larger than life characters so him as Macaulay would have been really interesting um, and De Niro like kind of stepping into that role of this 
you know, this this cop obsessed with catching criminals would have been really, really exciting as well. But I think they would have been like vastly different. And it, it would be it would be really funny to see like an interview with those two guys to see what they would have done differently in the other person's role. Um and Pacino in this one though is is a very intense character. Everything he does is intense and like we say he lives for the hunt. Um and as soon as he becomes involved, we find out very, very quickly that he's gonna do everything within his power to make sure that his kind of crack team um of of uh, investigators, including Ted Levine and uh the dude whose name escapes me, uh, Wes Studi, the the guy who was in um, Last of the Mohicans. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it is fucking hell, yeah. Yeah, I, it's like once again, he has a habit of man has a habit of carrying over actors and actresses from projects. Um, like Tom Noonan is a good example of that. But he's um, he's got his team, and they're going to look into. At first, they have no leads at all, like nothing at all. The only thing they know is that. Tom Sizemore at some point um, gets called Slick, or yeah. he calls someone Slick. One of the he, two. He calls Wangro Slick, doesn't he? Yeah, um, he calls him Slick, and that's the only thing they have to go on is that yeah, one of them called uh, someone Slick. It's the, it, that's when Pacino has been to, been to see Albert. Oh, it's <laughs> so one of the greatest things ever. You fall in love last night, Albert. <laughs> and he just starts singing, doesn't he? By the time I get to Phoenix, we'll be rising. I love, I love. He's 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 sitting he's sitting in front of him, and uh, just out of nowhere, he's like, "Give me all you got! Give me all you got!" It's like just screams at, like screams at the air, and the next time, like the camera goes to the criminal who is jaw dropped, and then turns around, and Pacino is the picture of calm serenity, sitting smiling in front of him. And it is so, it's so wonderfully bizarre. Like some of the Pacino outbursts in this movie are amazing. There's one got later a on in the movie. Great ass. Yeah, he says like she's got a great ass. If you look at the way he's mouthing, he's going to see big ass. Because yeah. G forms differently in the mouth, and he's right. like he's drawn a big ass with his hand. He's like she's got a great ass, and you got your head all the way up it. And I, I fucking love that scene because the guy is just like, what the fuck? It's like, yeah. just like, what the fuck? And he's like, eh, intense, huh? You know, just like, really? But that's part of what he does. He, he deliberately, I think, makes people unsettled and pushes them off their game and makes them feel that he is a bit kind of haywire and a bit loose. And all the rest are unstable. That's what leads to Albert's. It's either his uncle or his cousin in the nightclub, and that's where they find out about the slick thing because he calls him slick, and he and they literally it's about he's he's almost out of earshot. Mm -hmm. It's just such a fucking one of those lucky things, I suppose, that you know happens to coppers where you're just in the right place at the right time, and he just he says, "Sorry, what? Just say that again." And he says, "Slick," and he's like, "Why you? Why did you say that?" And he's like, "Oh, this guy. He just you know that's always that's how they get the connection to Sizemore's character, isn't it? And that's kind of." That's the break in the case, really. Yeah, so like you say, that the, the, the Wayne Grove character shooting um, a security guard that he didn't have to shoot, um, yeah. you know, obviously attracts more police attention than would be required. It would ultimately get Spicino on the case. The fact that they hear the word slick, which he then uses later on to attach to Tom Sizemore, 
And from that point, they're like that, right, we're staking out this guy, we're going to follow everything. I want pictures of him, I want pictures of his family, I want pictures of people that he meets with, I want pictures of their family, I want surveillance around everyone. And from that point onwards, that's them, you know, that that's the inevitable end of this movie is already set up in place, that, you know, they're going to find out who the crew is and they're going to try to stop them. We're introduced to a lot of really quite interesting cat. I mean, obviously, we're talking about Tom Sizemore. Val Kilmer is excellent in this movie. Like, actually excellent in this movie. And I'm not the biggest Kilmer fan um, at all, but he plays, essentially, for all intents and purposes, a really, really, really good criminal who could, if he could just stop gambling, could probably be, one, very wealthy, and two, have a, a beautiful family. Um, yeah. but he gambles away all the money that he makes on all his scores, and as a result, is constantly needing more money. You need the you know the the next the next crime, and he's essentially the number two in the 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 De Niro criminal organization chart. He's like the guy right underneath him. It's a guy that does a lot of planning, a lot of prep. Um, he is on some level almost like a weird amalgamation of uh, De Niro's character in this and the James Car- Can character from from Thief. Yeah. Um, and that he has all the technical knowledge of how to break into safes. In fact, there is a, there's a scene with him with a giant drill drilling into a safe later on, which is clearly a, a, like an homage to, to Thief. Um, yeah. But Kilmer's brilliant in this movie because he plays the role, I think, as edgy... And understated, like he's he's always kind of, he always looks like he's about to, you know, he's he's holding back something, um, he's kind of nervous or like has heavy withdrawal symptoms from drugs. Um, and there's a great scene at the end of the movie where, where you know he ultimately tries to reunite with his wife, who gives him the heads up about you know a, a potential sting operation to take him down and yeah. his acting on his face from the realization that he's about to get arrested to to him leaving and all the rest is just brilliant like the whole yeah. thing brilliant and i think he's excellent I, I john voigt who plays a very small role i mean like like i say the cast in this movie very much like the movie we're going to talk about in the next episode um the insider the casts are just ridiculous and this is the level that man's working on now. He is he has upgraded to a level now where he's he's dealing with some of the best character actors and some of the best actors in Hollywood. Um, that I, you know, I just I think like John Voight is brilliant in his small role in this. Tom Noonan, who is in it for less than two minutes of this movie, is fantastic as this the guy that brings him the score for the bank. Um, yeah, yeah. We have Natalie Portman in this movie as well, and she's phenomenal. Uh, she plays um, Pacino's uh, stepdaughter, uh, yep. who is, you know, struggling with severe uh, depression and anxiety problems. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so we get the shakedown of Albert, um, Albert's cousin, and from that point onwards, you know, we know what's going to happen is that, you know, Pacino's going to track down this crew and try and stop them, commit a crime that we don't know they're committing yet. And in the meantime, um, we find that the the bonds that they stole from the security van 
are actually owned by this guy called Roger Van Van Zant is his name. Yeah. Uh, played by William Fleshner, and he's brilliant in this as well. He tends to play a lot of kind of. I always think back to you ever seen the movie Go. No, don't think I have. Oh, you need to check out Go. The late nineties, um, kind of. It's like a a movie with three stories that are all all connected in the one movie it's got Katie Holmes and stuff like that and he plays this fantastic role you need to you, trust me you need to see it that's what I'm going to say I, I love Go I love Go um, but we find out that the plan is that with these stolen bonds um, John Voight wants to approach Van Zandt sell them back to him for you know he can still claim his, on his insurance to get the money back um, but he can sell them back so he has the money and everyone makes out you know everyone gets everyone gets a little a little bit of the pie so to speak um, but Van Zant actually fancies himself as like a bit of a criminal mob boss yeah and it's quite funny to watch because he he looks like like a country club tennis coach yeah. and his enforcer in this movie is like right hand man is played by a very young Henry Rollins who is obviously at the time Henry Rollins still is a, you know a, a well built guy he's got he's got a bit of muscle mass about him um, yeah. but he's for all intents and purposes he's playing like a, a, a yuppie kind of handler so to speak yeah. um, which is not the roles that he usually gets and Van Zandt's just like that you know the word on the street is that people can steal from me so we're, we're going to kill them all and he sets up this plan to basically kill Robert De Niro and his crew or whoever shows up to get the bonds back and you know send a message and we find it very quickly Van Zandt's not very good at planning things Andy at all he is dick and that's that was one, it's probably one of my favourite scenes in the film just because of our, I love the um, the little relationship obviously where Val Kilmer kind of hangs back. It reminds me of in Lethal Weapon. Um, oh yeah, you know, Riggs and Murdoch. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of that actually. That's um, it's very reminiscent of that. Yeah, I just I just love that whole thing of you know he's totally got his back and and you see I mean it's it's a crap plan. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the guy's just climbs out the back of the truck, tries to sneak up on him, obviously just gets squashed and it's, it's just a massive fucking calamity and it just reinforces again how fucking tight, professional and and, and great at their job like, you know, De Niro and, um, and, and uh, Val Kilmer's characters are because they just fucking sort that issue out straight away, don't they? Yeah, and it goes right on the phone and oh, it's a brilliant phone call. I love it, it's one of my favorite. And it's once again, De Niro... De Niro, the testament to how great an actor he is, De Niro can star in some comedies, I'm not saying all comedies, and he's very, very, very funny. He can yeah. star in, you know, some dramas, and he's, you know, he, he portrays them with depth and emotion. When De Niro wants to be scary, he's intimidating on screen. Mm. And I, I love that scene, because it is a kind of cheesy line that it puts out, and in anyone else's hands, you would almost laugh at the threat. But... And De Niro's delivery, it's, it's, you know, it's cold and calculating and he basically says, you you know... Um, no, there's no one on the end of this phone. Yeah, I mean, there's no one on the end of this line. The dead guy's man. like, what, what do you mean? He's like, because there's a, a fucking dead man on the end of this line. And you're just like, oh my God. And 
like we see the I love like later on in the movie we see the after effect and Van Zant's living in his office living off takeaway food all dishevelled hasn't seen sunlight for weeks he's terrified he's fucking he's absolutely shitting himself which I kind of love I think it's amazing but so we have that story going on in the background uh, as well and Tom Durin's a little tiny plot of them of the guy that played um, the president in 24 who's like just been let out of prison as well and he's working in a fucking diner for some douchebag that's taking 25% of his fucking tiny little minimum wage salary. Do you know that's how amazing this movie is? That any other movie, they would just happen to be in a restaurant where this guy happens to be working in. The fact that man gives you a good, like, five to ten minutes of story with that guy before he's brought into the crew. Yeah, because he's barely in the movie, but you even get you even care about him and you care about his wife and how he's like doesn't think doesn't think he deserves for her to be with him and mm-hmm. like just it's a, it's a bit like the Willie Nelson um, little scene. Yeah, it's so short, but it's just it's exactly what you need. I don't. It's such a skillful thing Michael Mann can do to make you give him give one hundred percent of a fuck about a character in two minutes. Yeah, and a guy who's not a good guy. That's you yeah. know this guy is a criminal. He is he. Yeah. He has robbed places before. He is, he is a he's a bad guy, and the, the beauty of this movie is, like, the people that you tend to not like in this movie, are not the police officers, are not the criminals. It's like the the Van Zant guy, the big businessman. You do, you don't like him. The the kind of sleazy guy that's sleeping with um, Val Kilmer's wife. We don't like him. You know, especially how we see he treats treats her after he finds that the cops are involved um, yeah. you, you know for the most part most of these characters are, are likeable characters even though the criminals have done reprehensible things it's it's a really weird scenario where you have so many likeable characters on opposite sides of the, the good guy bad guy spectrum and it's a difficult yeah. juggling act to do and I think it's done perfectly Um and it's, it's done so organically. There's never... Like, cynical part of me would say the reason we get a bit of backstory about the the, the guy from the, the, the restaurant, the, the grill cook guy that they bring in, um, is because, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to play on the heartstrings and, and all the rest. But I, I just think it's really good character development, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, if I was reading a book and a new character's introduced like this you would probably get a half a chapter explaining his backstory I mean that's just yeah. good writing and that's mm. what a lot of movies skip over and yeah, that's why you don't get the time in books isn't it but in films they just seem to almost like oh we don't need to bother with that because they're only on it for a couple of minutes and so I know you do need to bother you need to bother with everyone needs to be bothered about you can't just go well he's only on screen for a couple of minutes like where well, fuck it it's like no to, to, to elevate a movie to the point where you fucking care about everything you got to you got to put the work in, and again, it's a Michael Mann thing, you know, and a David Fincher thing. You know, there's there's a very only handful of directors that can be asked with that. Yeah, and they are the best in the you know the best in the business. It's, it's a, a meticulous style of filmmaking, which which borders on clinical. You know, oh, the, it's obsessive, isn't it? Completely, but you know, and it's probably it's probably not a great atmosphere on set. Really, because if you're being told to do scene after scene after scene, I mean, we'll get to the scene of De Niro and Pacino, oh. 
And, and Michael Mann, he's, he's talked about this before in other films, that you'll never get the performance you want. Kubrick talks about it as well. Kubrick's yeah. another one that's, um, if you watch the Shining documentary, he says you will not get the performance you need out of an actor until about take 15, 20, 25, maybe even 30. That's when you get the fucking performance that you're after because you can't just switch it on. Yeah. And I think I think it's about the 11th and final take of the conversation is the, is the one where the majority of the footage is taken from. Because I think they splice in bits of, you know, you know, take three, take five. But he said the majority of it is from the final take. Because that's when it all freaking falls in together. And I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen the making of where they talk about the conversation. Yeah. Where they've got characters, like, the cameras are, you know, recording each character's um, reaction. And there'll be a little head tilt that De Niro does that Pacino will completely react to. Yeah. And that sort of thing. It's just... It's rare and it's fucking amazing to watch. Yeah, it's, it's almost as there's something something inherently amazing about a movie which is has a lot of action, has a lot of drama, has a lot of story, and a scene which almost steals the entire movie is two guys in a cafe talking for five minutes. Yeah, you know, what I mean, that's, I, I mean, that's, that's how, that's how fucking good this movie is. Um, and as, people might say, because I reckon, I imagine a criticism of this is that they built up this massive hype of De Niro and Pacino being in the same movie, and then all you get is five minutes. But I think if you're whinging that you're only getting five minutes, you're kind of missing the point. Exactly. That's because all you the need. First, because the first hour and a half of that movie is building up to that, you know, and then the rest of the movie is the outcome. You know, yeah. maybe we'll see each other again. Maybe we'll carry on with our lives, and I'll never see you again. You know, yeah. and it's and it's that kind of thing that plays out. And you know, you know, it's not going to end well. And especially if you've seen other Michael Mann movies, you know, <laughs> like it, it's not typical Hollywood that you'd expect. It's, it's, yeah, he's not a, not a fan of the happy happily ever after ending, is he? Really? No, which especially is good criminal stuff. It, it, there, there is too much of that. Um, <laughs> oi. <laughs> That's, that's your dog agreeing with you, Andy. That's my new dog. He's um, very much taking the protective guardian of the house already whenever she hears a little noise next door. <laughs> it's all right. It's just someone delivering leaflets. Don't worry about it, mate. Um, where were What were we saying? Yes, yeah, like, I think that uh, we're going to get onto the cafe scene I, I, I think because we need we need to talk about the cafe scene. Um, yeah. But in terms of the, 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 the kind of the progression of the story. Uh, Tom Noonan's character Kelso explains this 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 bank heist, this this huge score of in excess of twelve million dollars that they'll be able to do. Um, it's very you know it's kind of big risk, but if done right, and he knows Pacino will be able to do it right, that everyone's going to win <laughs> this one. And what we get is we get this other job that they need to do first. They need to get through this other job first. And this is like yeah. a smaller job, so to speak. And this one should be less um, less dangerous. But because Pacino and crew have been you know, meticulously scoping them out, they've already kind of planned where they, they know where the next hit's going to be. Yeah, and that's of course, another amazing scene as well. This is yeah, one of my other favourites. Yeah, Macaulay has no idea he's been surveilled by the police. So the police have the edge at this point. And whilst they're in the van, um, Hannah is is basically coordinating things with a like a SWAT team and all the rest. And the SWAT team are not his team, and as a result, they are very itchy trigger finger. Want the they want the word to go. They want to they want the word to do what they're trained to do. Um, mm. 
But Pacino understands. That's just a good scene as well. Because like Pacino's command there over them. Don't you fucking dare yeah. do anything without my say. So I'm the boss here. My rank supersedes your rank. I don't give a shit what you say and you do not fucking move. And then obviously he's got his like kind of right-hand man as well that says don't fucking do anything until my boss says it's okay to do it. Yeah, he's and, got everything. that's fucking great because they are kind of mid-heist mid at that point. They're about to fucking do it, but they've not completed the mission. They have no money in their hands. Mm. So if they rumble them now, it's breaking and entering. And they'll fucking that's it. They've kind of lost it, and that's so tense as well for everyone involved. I think I, I love the scene because De Niro comes outside and goes into the shadows, so they put like a thermal cam on him, and you can just see yeah. the outline of his face. And one of the SWAT guys leans against the side of the van just enough to make a noise, and it's not a big noise. It, it could be wear and tear. It could be a bit of metal popping. It's not. It's not yeah. a, a you know a noise which you would instantly you know, regard this, oh, I'm being spotted by the police, but Macaulay is such a cautious person that he pulls the plug on the operation. And it's like you say, when they're leaving, the SWAT team's like, can we move in? And, you know, Hannah's like, what is the point? They have The worst we can do just now is arrest them for breaking and entering within six months after they get a slap on the wrist and be back on the street doing what they're doing. We need to get them Stealing. Well, these guys, these guys might be getting the chair, you know. Like they, this is, they're going away for life at least, aren't they? For what they've done. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, so what's the point of breaking and entering? You know, like all well, that's like you say, it's nothing. It's a misdemeanor. It's a six months, if that, and they're going to be out. And um, doesn't that doesn't this scene lead to the diner scene and the coffee scene? So um, it's just before just before this, we get this fantastic scene of them fake. Well, basically, at this point, De Niro once again comes back. And Macaulay gets his crew in and then says to him, listen, we've been made, the police are on us. Um, and he keeps coming back to this line that he said he was told by an old criminal, which once again is very thief-like. Um, this idea of you never want, you can never be in any position where you can't drop everything within 30 seconds of being made and just get out. You can't be in that position. It's why he tells Val Kilmer he should never have had a kid and, you know, like... Got, uh, that's where the name of the movie comes from isn't it it's nothing you can't walk out on in 30 seconds flat when the heat when the heat comes the and heat the, that word heat is used a lot more I'd like, I was trying to pay a bit more attention to, to the, the actual dialogue and use of the word heat from the first time I heard them mention it and it's mentioned the word heat is mentioned a lot in this movie and they keep coming back I mean, yeah that. I don't think I ever realised before and it gives a whole new meaning like because it just yeah it's, it's such a perfect name for the film um, it, it really is because the heat is on from that point onwards. I mean, the, uh, Macaulay says to them, listen, we, uh, you know, if it's up to me, we all go our separate ways. This is one extra risk. I will do this. It's all planned out. We can do this if you want. And Val Kilmer's like, you know, I need the money. <laughs> all my money's gone. Yes, I'm in 100%. Uh, Tom so says, everybody can, everyone can retire after this job apart from Kilmer, who's just straight down the casino. <laughs> <laughs> It's God like the next day. Put it all on black, 16. Uh, Rick ringing De Niro's character. Can we do another one? No. <laughs> I'm in Hawaii, mate. We're done. Uh, and you've got um, Tom Sizemore's like that. You know, I'll do whatever you want, boss. And De Niro's like, no, that's not going to cut it this time. You've like, he, like, Tom Sizemore, you get the impression from how he describes it. He's doing really well for himself. He's put money into property. You know, he's got his yeah. property investments. He's got. Yeah plenty saved up for the bank he's got a lovely family and he's like no if you I need to you can't use me this time if you want to do it you do it but my suggestion to you is 
you walk, you know, you walk, go back to your family, don't get involved with this, it's too much. And of course we found it from Albert's cousin earlier on in the movie that his description of Sizemore character is someone who lives for the the life of being a criminal. The rush of being a criminal is what what he lives for. Yeah. Um and as a result there's no way Sizemore is is not gonna do this job. He's like, fuck it, let's do it. And Danny Trejo, who doesn't have many lines in this movie. Um, and doesn't have as many wrinkles either. Uh, he is like a human toast rack, isn't he, in real yeah, life? He, he really fair. has aged horribly. You can like... park your bike in his forehead. <laughs> Do you know what? I thought they'd fucked up and called him his real name because they call him Trejo, and obviously that's just his character's name. Yeah. And I went straight to IMDb and went, oh my God, have they fucked up and called him Trejo? Oh no, his name is His Trejo. name is Trejo. <laughs> this is an early, earlier role for him in terms of Hollywood movies. Um, but yeah, so we get we get this uh, we get the the mall agreeing to do the work, uh, and then there's stuff happening in the background. So the first thing that's happening in the background is obviously Van Zant is living Chinese meal to Chinese meal in his his office, and he is introduced to the the Wingro character, who's like that. Ah, you know, I've done many jobs with these guys, which is a lie. He's done one job. Um, he's actually done the job that took that money off him and the guy that'll be able to help you get them and all the rest and he you know he, he kind of aligns himself with that but Macaulay does something very clever he basically sets up a fake conversation about a heist at, at the at the docks at these shipping containers and of course all the police show up to observe them um, and then they, they drive away and Hannah and his crew all go down and they start looking around in the lake you know, there's, this doesn't make sense. Why go from, you know, like big busts down to this? This doesn't, you know, doesn't make any sense. You know, they're looking around, and the penny drops for Hannah, and he's like, "That do you know why we're? Do you know why they've picked this area?" And it's, it's the exact thing that they'd already done to De Niro's guy. So, like, so De Niro knows the police are after him. He wants to know who the police are that are after yeah, him. Yeah. And he wants to know how bad it is, so he sets up this thing that he knows the cops will end up in the same place, scoping out the same area and looking around. And he goes up one of the large kind of crane forklift things, yeah, and takes photos of them. And of course, straight away, Pacino knows that he's been made, and he kind of applauds him. It's like you're on game on, well done, you know, well done, son. Well done. That's uh, we're square now. Yeah, I see what you did there. I see what you did, and that leads to the diner scene. So we 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 basically. We get De Niro's out driving. Hannah pulls him over, says, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Um, and the two of them sit down in this diner. And history cinema is made here. Um, yep. Probably one of the most iconic scenes in, in cinema history, I would say. Um, because it's... And like you said, Andy, you're spot on with this. Um, people that want more De Niro and Pacino on screen together don't understand... Don't understand... The, the nature of the story. The nature they're not of the mates. Do you know what I mean? Like, they're not going to go another game of squash. <laughs> yeah, plus, th- this is highly unusual. You know what I mean? This is this is highly unusual. Like, Hannah is basically telling Macaulay, I, you know, on some level, I don't have anything. I can't arrest you just now. I, I don't have anything to connect you. I, can't, I cannot arrest you just now. If you don't do anything... You know, I can't do anything to you, and maybe you shouldn't do anything, and everything will be okay. And you've got De Niro basically saying, "This is my life. This is what I do. I am very good at this. 
I can't stop, or I, only I will tell myself when to stop, and you will not take me back to prison. You know, you will not. And we find that the, like De Niro has done a bit of time. You know, he's, he's done a bit of time in some pretty bad prisons, very much like James Can from Thief, and yeah. he has absolutely zero intention of going back. And Pacino's like, well, you know, if it comes down to it, I will arrest you. Um, and you know. De Niro's, I'll arrest you or kill you. And De Niro's like that. If you think because we've sat down and had coffee together, and you know shared a smile and a story to each other, that when I see you, I won't do what I need to do to not go back to prison, then you know you're out of luck. That's exactly. And they exchange their sort of anxiety dreams as well, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene because, like, I said. We, they're two very flawed characters. They're two like incredibly flawed characters who I think on some level see something in each other which they they have. I mean, like Pacino is very methodical. See when you see him planning stuff out, it is his way working with his crew is not too dissimilar to how Macaulay works with his crew. It's, it's all about planning. It's all about preparation. It's it's like a game of chess. It's thinking five moves ahead. They come from different sides of the law and different temperaments, definitely. But they essentially have this weird respect for each other and it comes out... You find that they're very similar in that both of them, whether you're the police officer who is maintaining the law and on the just side of the law, or you are the criminal who is doesn't want to kill anyone and wants to make sure that everyone lives and is stealing from from places that almost he knows like they steal from the the safety safety deposit car but that money's all insured when they steal from the bank everyone's money's insured yeah so he's in some way no one's getting hurt people are getting hurt obviously it's like a code isn't it it and that's another reason why you kind of get on board with them it's you know it's a bit like in point break it's like it's like easy to get on board with those as well because they're just you know they're just in it for the fucking thrilling and for the money and Unlike Wayne Grove, who just likes to go around killing people, you know, it is easy to get on board with people when they you can almost relate to it in a way because they don't want to harm people, they just want to fucking live a, a better life. And to them, crime is the only way they know how to do that. Um, and I think it's, it's good as well, like, some of the characters obviously are in it for the money, and like you say, some of them are just in it for the thrill. Yeah. And I think with Hannah, he's not in he's not he's not giving a shit about upholding the law. I don't think that's why he's in it at all. He's not a conformist that just hates the fact that people are breaking the law. He loves the thrill of the hunt. Yes. And it's a bit like that with the criminals as well. And some of them aren't in it for the money. Yes, yeah, some of them, you know, they've got the better life and stuff, but they're in it for the thrill of it. And I think, as well as either actor could have played either of those two i think either character they're almost like the same like two sides of the same coin these guys where you know al pacino could have just as easily been a criminal because it is again it's the thrill of it for him and i really think that's an interesting psychology amongst the characters that it's almost like it's an obsession you do see that a lot with people don't you that in these kind of lines of work it's becomes their entire life i think pacino's character is on his third wife yeah in this movie and it's weird because I can't imagine ever being into something that much. Do you know what I mean? Where everything everything else fucking goes out the window. And yeah. I find, kind of find that fascinating. I think that's why he's so good at his job, though. I think I think yeah. that's, like, uh, you need to... I mean, what he's dealing with, I mean, he, he tries to speak to his wife at one point and she's like, you know, and 
he basically says to her in a conversation, like, I told you right at the very start that you would need to share me with all the criminals and all the bad people in this city. You would need it's to share me. It's a bit like me with podcasting. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I say to my wife every night. You are aware you need to share me with lots of different podcasts, lots of different podcasters and a listening audience. You need to share me. <laughs> and, and she has to understand that. But... Um, yeah. She, uh, I love how she's like that. You know, you know. I, you just tell me how your day is, and it's like, what do you want me to say that I went into a junkie's flat and found that you know they'd microwave their baby because, you know, because it wouldn't stop crying, and mm. it's that sort of comment. And you know the way that he's saying that that has happened to him. That's not him acting up. That is yeah, something. That's not that just giving her a fake example. That's fucking happy. Yeah. It's something that he has seen, and I think. That is, that speaks more to the character about the fact he's good at his job, but the fact that he is obsessively hooked on catching criminals and the thrill of the hunt, that all this horrible shit can happen around him and it doesn't deter him or you know put him off. He might have a moan about his job, but ultimately he can't stop. He can't, he can't stop doing what he's doing. Um, no. We see a scene with with Wayne Girl and um, a sixteen year old prostitute, who we see the after effects of. He, he basically he, he horribly, horribly kills her, and then stuffs her in a in a kind of public place, violated to be found by people. Um, mm. And we get this great scene of because this is a crime that's happening along with all the other stuff that's happening in this movie, and Pacino gets called out to it. And the mother breaks through the kind of police ranks to come up, and Pacino just runs and grabs her and you know hugs her, and the emotion in his face is just once again incredible performance, like absolutely. Because I was saying the film, he's got a stepdaughter of the same age, you know, and it's yeah. like oh, it's brutal. And it, do you know what? They don't touch on it that much. It's a real, almost a real throwaway line that they never really pursue. And it could be like a different, almost a side movie. Is that Wayne Grow has done that before? You know, they say what what happened to her? How did she die? Oh, same as all the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we know he's a serial killer. And you know, like, yeah. he's... But, like that's the last you kind of hear of that. And I almost feel it's a bit of a shame that we don't get a little more to that. Um, yeah, yeah, because we, the, we never find out that he like we know he's a killer, but the police never know he's a killer. So it's a crime that will likely go unsolved. Yeah, that's just going to sit in the back burner. Um, yeah. I think, but I, I think it speaks more true to life, though. I think that's probably one of the the, the most kind of hyper realistic things that happens in this movie, is that serial killers sometimes are caught for other things and not the things they've done, um, or you know, like thieves are caught for breaking like a, a speed law and arrested yeah, for that, but get away with that crime. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's. I think that's once again is is infinitely fascinating. Um, meanwhile, Hank Azaria is in this movie. He's been sleeping with uh, with um, Val Kilmer's wife, and the police yeah. find it very quickly. And they basically, this once again, how you find out that Pacino's not exactly the nicest guy. Uh, he extorts this guy by saying, "Listen, you, I've spoken to Las Vegas police. They're going to ship you back for these parking charges that you have." Um, and New New York or wherever it is, um, and, unless you know, unless you <laughs> like become what uh, well, unless you work for us essentially, which he agrees to do 
um, and sets up what could essentially be the downfall of Val Kilmer's character. Um, which we will once again come back to later on in the movie. So that's all, lots of stuff happening in the background. I kind of love that about this movie is any other movie would just focus on the first crime, then maybe that second crime and then finish with a big crime at the end. And the bank heist in this movie that we're all leading up to happens still a good 45 minutes from the end of this movie. Mm, Which is just crazy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, because we we have this we have essentially the bank heist all set up and it's good to go and Wayne Grove basically turns them in like really kind of sends in an anonymous tip to the police department which filters its way through on the day of the crime yeah so De Niro's plan is flawless he the only thing he doesn't have is his Trejo Trejo has uh, been made by the police and he can't make it and they just so happen to be eating in the same diner as the the, the guy who was released from prison that we spoke about earlier on and yeah. he goes up gets him and his crew like the guy is obviously I, you get that feeling he really is trying to, to tow this straight and narrow and he's, he's trying isn't he to, for, for his missus I think more than anything else because she's so like set, going on about how proud she is that he's trying to go straight and stuff and it's like oh fucking hell I, I can't though you know I mean yeah. you can't fucking go straight because no one's going to give you a chance yeah the system is designed in such a way system not to really re- rehabilitate yeah. people and that boss he has is like the is there's I think that's isn't that like on some level a statement from man saying, you know, look at this guy who's come out of prison, who's ultimately going for a guy who's exploiting them, who's doing mm-hmm. something criminal, and this guy's seen as pillar of the community, owner of a business, and all the rest, and he's fine. Yeah. But this guy who's done his you know his time, um, has come out, and all he's wanting his work is going to be exploited by this guy, and we we look at the criminal as the the lesser. And I oh, think in any other film, he probably would have beat the shit out of him and put his head in the deep fryer. <laughs> but it's just not realistic, is it? Because you're not bringing any... Yeah, it's, again, it's all down to this thing of bringing too much heat. He knows yeah. that'll bring heat on him. Whereas yeah. if he just fucking pushes him over, humiliates him in front of the rest of his staff, that's enough. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's all you need, really. And that's it's, it's, it's gratifying without being too over the top, isn't it? Agreed, agreed. And so, essentially, we're now, we're now at heist everything's going according to plan except the police get a tip off and they arrive just at the end of the heist so um, they arrive as Val Kilmer is making his way out, Kilmer spots him and then we get this what can only be described as one of once again one of the most bitching scenes ever recorded in 90s cinema and it's this standoff between police uh, De Niro, Kilmer Sizemore um shot on location, on set, I mean everything in this movie is shot on set, there was no soundstage or anything used like, man's attention to detail is it needs to be done in real life or it's not real um, we have this whole street that's closed off in downtown LA and it's it's you know, it's game on, the police um, are, are desperately trying to take down these criminals and the criminals are desperately trying to get away and this scene is you talk about that opening robbery being just like well choreographed, well shot, just intense action cinema, and then you get to this bit, and this this one bests it, you know, 
and, and, and does it in such a way that it all the, the reason it bests it is not because it ups the ante or ups the scale or anything all it does is widens the lens it gives it a bigger scope so there's more money thereafter there's going to be more police involved and all the rest and Kilmer gets shot in the shoulder and De Niro kind of breaks one of his rules um, in that he could just walk away should walk away but he doesn't he helps Kilmer escape um, Sizemore picks up a kid to use as a human shield or a hostage. Do you know what is funny as well? Because initially, you, for a split second, and I think I do think this is deliberate. For a split second, he, it looks like he's picking her up to remove her from the, the danger. It does, yeah. He's not. No. <laughs> That's always. It's the greatest of eight-year-old human shield. He's like. I, Sizemore has that one of those kind of playful faces as well as an actor where you could imagine he probably is like on some level one or the other like easily one or the other oh yeah he's, he's lifting that kid out of the way of the gunfire oh no he's using her as a human shield um, and he's taken down he's shot um, and the driver's shot as well uh, and what I love about that is the the news comes over the we see the after effect of that so um the driver's wife is at a bar somewhere and she finds out that our girlfriend finds out that you know our, our boyfriend or husband has died um, whilst committing a robbery a really really bad one um, yeah. and then we have this the kind of last portion of the movie here um, which is we know that well Pacino knows that basically Wayne Grow has sold him out. Um, wants revenge. Wants revenge, but revenge doesn't fit within the code. No. So John Voight is basically saying to him, listen, I've set you an out, get out. You know, go now, go while you can. Remember, remember your rule, um, 30, 30 seconds, you've got to be able to just walk away. And that means... The thing is, though, it's not just revenge for that, is it? Obviously, De Niro's still seething from the fucking from the opening robbery where he fucked them. Yeah, he's, he wants revenge not, on that part as well. And he wants revenge against uh, Van Zant. Yeah. Which he gets pretty quick. So, um, you know, Van Zant essentially is back at home now, feeling a bit more safe and secure. And De Niro just, like, walks up to the side of his huge beach house, flings a chair right through his large glass windows, steps right through, puts him down. Like yeah. meticulously, like like a hitman, puts mm-hmm. him down. First problem removed, and you know he goes meets meets up with his his new squeeze, has basically come clean to her. So she knows he's a criminal now, but uh, it sells her on this good life that they're going to have together. Basically yeah. makes her corrupt some of her morals, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and all they have to do, all they have to do, is use the new out that John Voight has set up for them, and they're home and free. That's all they have to do is follow. All they have to do is follow the plan, which De Niro's really good at. All they have to do is follow that plan, and Hannah knows that. Hannah's like, ah, this guy's not going to stick his head up for anything, you know. He's not. He's not going to do it. However, if he was going to do it, we'll get this Wayne Grow guy, and we're going to put him in this hotel, and we're going to make sure that the word is out there that he's in this hotel, and maybe, maybe, potentially, maybe De Niro will show up. But De Niro at first doesn't take the bait and 
as such, Hannah kind of thinks, you know, that's it. It's too late. Knowing the timeline, he's gone. We're never going to see this guy again. That's us done. In the interim of all this, um, little Natalie Portman, who has been suffering quite badly with mental trauma throughout this movie, has slit her wrists. Uh, well, she yeah. slit her arm and slit her... Um, was it her femoral artery or along her leg? She tried to, yeah, in the leg, isn't it? Yeah, in the groin. Yeah, to, to, to but she knew what she was fucking doing as well. Like, yeah, well, that's, I think that was the bit that's the, the scary part of it is that she, she, she knows what she's doing about yeah. this. I have slightly skipped over something that I want to come back to, though. Um, obviously, Hannah and his wife are not getting on very well, and so she <laughs> decides she's just going to go out have drinks with this guy called Ralph she's going to bring Ralph home and De Niro's going to walk in on them and uh, it's so uncomfortable I like Ralph oh, I feel so uncomfortable Ralph, sit down <laughs> sit down <laughs> so, yeah, you, could, you can sit in our post-modernistic bullshit apartment but you cannot you will not watch my motherfucking <laughs> television like, like you can bone my wife <laughs> you can drink from my glasses <laughs> You and it takes his pissy little telly though it's hilarious it's so 95 it's, oh it's such a tiny tiny one with the old wire kind of antennas at the top and he's trying to move this thing and it's not moving right and it's all fucking getting shoved in and he ultimately throws it at his car it's, it's a statement as opposed to the possession um, but yeah he finds his, his, his uh, stepdaughter near death um, takes her to the hospital and that kind of rekindles his relationship back with his wife who yeah. at that point after he saved her and stuff like that is like right I know you've got criminals to catch I understand this is your life go and do what you have to do and he's like that yeehaw so he's away he's out the door he's on his way to to, to try anything to see if anything comes up um, meanwhile the trap has been set for Val Kilmer yeah. uh, um, Hank Azaria has managed to get um Val Kilmer's wife stuck in a rut, so to speak, yeah. um, and she obviously is uh, is in this kind of protective custody thing that Kilmer doesn't know anything about. And Kilmer's been getting operated on, completely shaves his hair, so it looks completely different, and they think that that might be him showing up. So she goes out to basically confirm that that's him, so the police can move in, and. He looks up, and I think this is a fucking great scene. He looks up, and you can see the relief and the love in his face. And she does a she's hand still signal. There. Yeah, yeah that she's not, and also that she's not done a fucking runner either on him. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That she's given that one last chance. Yeah, she's to like committed to him right to the very end, right to the very end. And she does a hand signal to him, and his face instantly knows that there's something up. So he pretends to ask for directions, drives away, is stopped by the police but the police give him a pass, so Kilmer makes it out of this movie. He survives. Mm. Um, yeah. Meanwhile... You no, know, I nearly thought, I thought they'd nearly fucked up as well, because I'd forgotten that like, they'd pull him over, and I thought, hang on a minute, surely you're not just going to kind of take her word for it that that wasn't him. You must yeah. you, Surely you've still got a check, haven't you? Yeah. And obviously they do. And um, it's, but it's, look, he's got a fake idea, hasn't he? So yeah. he's clear. So he's got his out, and he's followed. He almost didn't follow his out, but he gets out. So yeah. De Niro's on his way. They're at plain sailing, everything's fine, they're going. Um, he speaks to, to John Voight and John Voight basically tells him, you know, this is your out, get out here. I have to tell you this only because you asked me and I owe it to you. 
Um, but that Wayne Go guy, he is at this hotel. Um, if I was you, I wouldn't do anything. But he's in this hotel anyway. I've told you that's me done my bit. Hopefully we'll never see each other again. And you all have a happier life. It's been a pleasure working with you. So long. And De Niro's like, fine. Not doing anything. We're going. And he's driving. And as he's driving, once again, credit to De Niro as an actor. Not that we need to give him it. He's a fucking amazing actor. You can see it's constantly turning over in his eyes. You know, about can he do this? Can he do this? Can he do this? And this is the bit I was talking about earlier on that I find his principles really interesting. He doesn't cave on vengeance. You know what I mean? On vengeance, he can't walk. He can't walk away from this sense of duty, this sense of vengeance against this other criminal. But he can walk away from her. Uh-huh. And I think the movie sets up up until that point that he won't be able to walk away from her and that's what will get him caught. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even though he keeps saying it, you get this idea. You get this I idea. Is Wayne Gray responsible for Treo getting killed as well? Yes. But that's... Yes. Yeah, so, we, we, so there's that. That's the extra. I think that's the nail in the coffin. I think he might have been able to leave it if it wasn't for that. Yeah. But obviously he's fucking killed his wife yeah. and left him for dead as well. So yeah. Basically, he, beat the shit of him to find out what the job was. Um, God, don't know, hasn't he? Yeah. Got, but you know, as, as but like I say, the movie, I feel anyway, sets up this idea that love will ultimately take down Macaulay. You know, he'll let his guard down. He'll, he'll end up with a woman, um, or he'll end up sacrificing something for the woman that he wouldn't do generally, and that's ultimately what will get him caught. And it's not, and that's the beauty of this movie. It's very similar to Thief that way as well, uh, and and Thief. You know, he could go with a woman and be happy ever after, and he doesn't. He sends her away with money, so he can, you know... He kind of works against... You know, he could leave with her with the money and he'd be fine, but he decides not to. Um, and it's the same in this movie. You know, he, all he has to do is not go after Wayne Grow, and he, he can't help it. He has to do it. And yeah. so he... <laughs> drives to the hotel he's at, steals a uniform, finds out what room he's in, goes in, Chaps the door. Uh, it pulls the alarm first, so people are evacuating the the hotel uh, with the fire alarm. Um, goes in. Wengro fucking Wengro knows what's up as well at that point. I think he's trying to. Yeah, I think shit. he thinks there's something suspicious, and when he looks out, Pacino has his back to him. So when he starts to open the door, you know, Pacino kicks it in, and he's he's sitting on the chair, and I love that. Look at me, look at me, and. Uh, Wayne Grow, who's been a cocky fucking horrible bastard all the way through this movie is a snivelling little worm at the end of this movie you know, yeah. can, looks up, make eye, eye contact and he's, he's shot to death um, I love that shot as well about, you know, like it's shot in the chest and you hear him trying to breathe that kind of <gasps> which, yeah. once I get just attention to detail things I love um, meanwhile Pacino knows that because <laughs> he's been surveilled um, knows that Wayne Grove has been attacked by Macaulay. He makes his way down there. Uh, Macaulay's walking out to the car. Looks like he's maybe going to have it all. And he looks over and sees Pacino. Hannah's coming after him. And he looks at his girlfriend's eyes and just walks away. So he ultimately follows the code um, in a weird way. Uh, and walks away. And then we're in the final scene of this, which is shot at LAX. Um, on the runway 
and it is actually shot at LAX on the runway. Almost didn't happen because of uh, a threat by the Unabomber, which is quite interesting because the Unabomber's mentioned in quite the a Insider. lot. In yeah. The Insider, which is the movie we're going to be talking about next week, or sorry, the next what, episode. Do you know what's a cool little parallel as well? Is that after they had coffee, De Niro's character drives to LAX because he knows they can't follow him there. Yeah. Obviously, he goes to LAX a second time, doesn't have the same kind of outcome. So I thought that's pretty cool that the first time he goes to LAX and Patino's like, fuck, yeah, I, know, I know why he's done that. It's because we can't fly over there. We can't, yeah. you know, because the flight path. Um, so I think it's pretty cool they kind of then revisit the LAX and obviously this time he doesn't escape Pacino, does he? He's, uh, he gets in. No, they, they, they end up with this iconic showdown, which is a showdown they basically talked about at the cafe. You know, like, De Niro will not be taken alive and... You know, um, Pacino won't stop until uh, you know De Niro is either captured or dead, um, and he ultimately shoots him a couple of times, and he falls back. And I've said this on many, many shows, Andy, and I stand by it. That end sequence where you know he basically he's lying there dying, and he raises his hands, and Pacino takes his hands, and we see a, a shot from the back, and the camera is. It's this big widescreen shot of LAX and the music builds up and we have that that kind of lasting image which lasts a good 10-15 seconds. Mm. I genuinely think it's one of the best shots ever in cinema. It yeah. gets I, like the the hairs on my arm and the back of my neck stand up on end every time I see it. I think it's one of the most powerful things of a shot. And it is, the, the look on Pacino's face as well, he didn't want to kill him. Nah. And he goes back to what I'm saying earlier as well. Like he's not he's not in it to because he desperately wants to uphold the law or kill these guys. It's it's the chase for him. It's he wanted to, he wanted to catch him alive. He, he you know he, he massively regrets having to shoot the guy, and you can tell that on his face. Yeah. Um, also, the second time Moby is used in this movie mm-hmm. uh, to awesome effect. And then if you listen to much Moby, no, and he had that album. Was it Plea? Yeah, I was a huge fan. See, when Play came out, I'd, I'd obsessively listened to that for about, I don't know, about fucking two years. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I listened to Moby pretty much on a weekly basis. I've got about 10 of his albums on my thing. And this, this is on one of the sort of the, the less mainstream albums, this song. Yeah. And the other song that plays on in the film as well. Um, and he's got a couple of albums that are really similar to, you know, it's that kind of music. It's almost like kind of background sort of chill out music rather than the stuff, you know, it's not on the same album where his singles and stuff come from. Um, and I think it's a really good choice. Um, and I wanted to just touch on Moby and how I think how sort of underrated he is because there's so many movies where they close the movie out with the Moby song. Yeah. And it's such a perfect song. Obviously, like the the, the song that plays out towards the end at the end of Scream when the camera pans up over the massive house is Moby. Um, Born Identity, that finishes with the Moby song. Um, Miami Vice does, obviously this does. Quite a lot of other films as well where they use like a, a Moby score and I think it's it's such a well-chosen song. Yeah. It's just perfect, isn't it? It needed to be there. It's a bit like the Tangerine Dream in some of the other films that we've talked about. Like That scene would not be as powerful without that song in the background. And it just it just brings that scene to perfect close. Yeah, I think, I think um, we're kind of touching on I think the score to this movie once again is perfect. It's actually yeah. it works incredible, and we have like lots of different people um, 
and different versions, renditions of like eighties music, like from Joy Division. You've got Brian Eno, U two, um, you know, just different artists being involved. Um, so we're moving once again away from this idea of the the Tangerine Dream scoring the entire movie into an, an amalgamation of different musicians. Um, and uh, Elliot Goldenthal, I think, does the, the the main kind of score through it. Um, I, I think that's. I think it's. I think it works incredible. I mean, incredible with this movie, and it, it just sets things off. The, the 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 way the movie shot, like the cinematography, is perfect. And there are some there are mannerisms in here. There are scenes with you know, with the cars and stuff like that that man likes to use in movies. Uh, slow motion shots in this movie as well. Um, yeah. we, we get the you know the things that we associate with Michael Mann, we get a lot of the colour schemes, the tones, the blues, the neon that you associate with Mann also appear in this movie. Um, So he's continuing them on. And I still think of all the statements we mentioned on the show thus far, you probably got the one that's most accurate about how much this movie owes to Thief and um, Manhunter. And it really, really does when you watch it. It's like the best parts of both, but elevated to the next level. Yeah, I think um, it's point break though. Do you think he took t- quite a lot of inspiration for some of the scenes? I don't know. I don't think so. I think, I think this movie was... the robbery scenes really similar, like the camaraderie between the the like the criminals and how like tight they are and stuff. But maybe this just, was uh, written in like eighty two though. I know it was, yeah. Which makes me think maybe like I don't know, did something, did some part of that kind of leak out into Point Break? I don't know. Well, they did make. I've never seen the LA Takedown. So LA Takedown, which came out in '89, which precedes Point Break, maybe. Maybe Point Break stole it from that. Maybe took things from it. Yeah, I don't know. That that, that certainly needs to watch LA Takedown. Yeah, I just I was just doing a bit of double checking while we were talking there. Point Break was 1991. Okay. Um, So four years, four years before uh, Heat, but two years after um, LA Takedown. So. Yeah, I, I think I genuinely think he is. We might as well get into this, Andy. Unless there's anything else you want to say, we might as well get into this because we, we we need to we need to start we need to start putting some serious decisions down here. Yeah, the only last thing I want to talk about is just the scene with Wayne Gray when uh, when he um, kills the, the prostitute. Yeah, so that's a fucking brutal scene. It's horrible. Yeah. Where he knows what's going to happen to her, obviously long before she twigs. Yeah, you know, she and it's and I think it's her age. She's just really fucking naive and just doesn't realise what he's saying. Um, and he says something along the lines of the Grim Reapers visiting you tonight. Yeah, and oh, she thinks so. that that means like his dick or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, so uh, you you're gonna fucking die. Yeah, and it's yeah, and it's just it's a really fucking scary scene. And he's a, a really great character, that guy. Um, yeah, right, he's, he's a bro- he's brilliant in the role. Like uh, that's, that's Kevin Gage, um, who's been in. He actually has done quite a lot of horror, funnily enough, um, in the past. But uh, he was also in, I didn't know that he was in Sons of Anarchy. There you go. He was a henchman. He was in Banshee as well. Holy shit! Oh. There you go. The, so the more he's you great. Know. Yeah, I just wanted to to sort of uh, acknowledge how good how good that guy is because it just adds that extra little level, that extra little serial killer thing in in the plot that didn't really need to be there, but just adds that extra level that just makes it fucking cool. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Right. So 
on Opera Omnia, if this is the first time you're listening, and really if this is the first time you're listening, you really need to go back and listen to the first episode first and then catch up um, to understand where we're going with this. But we will offer a review out of 10. It's a technical grade based on how we feel the movie achieves things. Um, and then we will also see whether or not at this time period, by the year 1995, is this the best movie that Michael Mann has done? Now, I'll kick us off because I feel that I have the least surprising answer, potentially. I don't know. Um, I genuinely think this is a 10. Like... And, and um, that's like on technical grades there are very few movies that I'll ever give a 10 to my default will probably yeah. be like for, for movies that are like the, the top end of the top which usually land in about a 9.5 as opposed to a 10 because there's always that something you can tweak or adjust or improve slightly on or and they're usually personal things as well where I'm like that I really wish they'd done this with the story um, but Heat to me all around is just a perfect movie I, I genuinely can't think even the things that would detrimentally affect a movie from 1995 like age um yeah. or you know like the settings and stuff like that age has been really good to this movie and i think it's because it's all practical and um, it's all shot on location and um, it's all proper stunts and, and all the rest there's nothing that makes it feel like an old and there's nothing that makes this movie feel like it's you know 30 years old at all um which i think is is brilliant it's not 30 years old either I'm talking shit 20 years old 20 years old there's nothing in this movie that makes it feel 20 years old you know what I mean it just it still to me feels very fresh feels very very vibrant I think the storytelling is excellent I think the acting is incredible I think the casting is really good I think it's shot beautifully I think the score is amazing um, it's a movie that is like a like a testicle here off of uh, three hours long and mm. it is so captivating and so interesting and never at any point feels the length of it I think that is very difficult to do uh, yeah. I think it does it it does it well there's no way I could not give it a 10 um, and there's no way I could say in my heart of hearts that I that I don't think that this is the best movie that Michael Mann has done by this this uh, this year 1985 it to me topples thief what about yourself Andy where do you come down okay so this is where this got me thinking um, <laughs> And and last week, watching The Last of the Mohicans made me reconsider, um, not the way I'll grade this because we've already agreed that we're talking about the best movie from a technical point of view, yep. but the best movie and my favourite movie are obviously going to be two different things. And the reason last week made me think of it is that Last of the Mohicans is a far better film than The Keep. Mm-hmm. I'd watch The Keep again before I'd watch Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> so... Obviously, better movie, not my favourite movie. Yeah. Um, and then that got me thinking to, yes, I do agree with you that this is the best Michael Mann film that he's ever done so far. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a better movie than Thief? Yes, it is a better movie than Thief. But do I think, do I like it better than Thief? Not sure if I do. Um, ah. I'm not sure if I still prefer Thief over Heat. Um, I didn't have time to watch Thief again, like I said I was, but I will watch it again before we do our top five. Yep, that's um, cool. Because I think the best Michael Mann movies are not going to be the same as my favourite Michael Mann movies. No, 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 that's, that's where we come absolutely, down. Yeah, this is absolutely the best film he's done so far and probably the best film he's ever done. Um, not that I've seen everything he's done, but I just can't imagine anything coming that close to this. Um, with regards to the score, 
Now, I've kind of shot myself in the foot by saying that I'm not going to give half grades. <laughs> and I'm not going to go back on that just because I think half grades, it's so much scope that you can potentially have 20 different grades that you can offer a film. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always kind of thought that with certain shows that do the whole A plus, A minus, A, A, B plus, B, you know, it's like fucking hell, that's so many different things. And because we don't have that kind of grading system in England, that always makes me think, can't you just say, like a B? <laughs> why do we have to go like b minus b plus <laughs> so that's just my own personal gripe and I've, you know i wish i kind of had said i was doing half grades because if i was doing half grades i would have given this a nine and a half mm-hmm. um but unfortunately because i've kind of said i'm not doing half grades i can only award it a nine Great. um that doesn't mean it's not a fucking incredible movie because it is it just doesn't do that extra thing for me that warrants a 10 and normally, under any other circumstance, I would be scoring this a nine and a half because it is just a fucking awesome movie. And it reply, I think it essentially requires multiple viewings. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Well. Um, there's other little things in this that we've not even talked about. Just these tiny little subtle character, you know, just these little things that happen that don't need to be there, um, but just enrich the viewing experience and just make it a whole, a wholly better film for them in there. And like you say, some of them they're just two minute scenes or two minutes of character development where then there'll be another 15 second scene where a guy just pushes a bloke into a bunch of pots and storms out of his job but that has more pathos and weight because of the two minute scene that they could be bothered to set up that most directors just wouldn't be bothered doing yeah so you've got to watch this like I know you've watched it three times this week um, and <laughs> i yeah, I've had like time constraints. I mean, I did want to watch it twice, and then I also wanted to watch Thief as well. I wanted to kind of sandwich it and watch Heat and Thief and Heat again, but mm-hmm. I just didn't have time to do that, um, which is a shame. But if anyone's kind of maybe not seen this film recently, you have to watch it again, and if you've got time, watch it twice. Yeah. There's That's so great. much in there. There's so much fucking everything. There's so much character development. There's so much amazing dialogue just quotable stuff that you'll remember you know just certain lines that people say to each other that you just kind of go oh fuck that hit like a sledgehammer um it's rare it's a rare film it's a rare film how much timing how much kind of research and depth and quality just quality of the product of this movie and you just don't get it anymore there's very little directors that put this much time and effort into their craft and there's very few directors that get this much out of the actors that they put in their movies Obviously, you're going to get good performances when you put someone like De Niro and Pacino in a movie, but everybody in this movie puts in a good performance, even if they're only on screen for two minutes, um, like Tom Noonan. Mm-hmm. He's still, I still remember the character. I still remember the scene. I remember exactly what he looks like with his big beard and his weird clothes. It's just like everything just goes in and stays with you, um, and that's just a testament to how awesome this film is, and it's the best film Michael Mann has done so far. Boom! Right, so moving forward, until we go back to do the top five Michael Mann movies at the very end and do personal choices, what we'll do is we will say at this point there is a split. I'm saying Heat and you're saying Thief, and we'll just continue that on. And maybe, you never know, for all we know... What I'm saying Thief is my favourite. Yes, and I'm saying Heat's my favourite. And we'll just... That's my favourite. I could be more... I could give you a better answer if I'd rewatched Thief, but I haven't. But by the time we do our top five, I will have rewatched Thief. Yeah. But we'll, we'll um, certainly at that point we we will sort things out. I still think I'm listening. Isn't it? I think. Do you know what? I think it might be one of them things. Like when I'm watching, 
a certain show, I don't know, like when Dexter was on. Oh, that's my favourite show. I love it. It's my, Dexter's my favourite show of all time. And then like you watch it in Sons of Anarchy and you're right in the middle of the season and it's fucking great and you go, oh my God, but maybe Sons of Anarchy is my favourite show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think like if I watch Heat, that's the best, that's my favourite Michael Mann film and then I watch Thief and I go, oh God, no, this, no, oh God, I think it's this one. And I think it's going to be one of them. It probably just depends what fucking day I got up and what, you know, what side <laughs> of bed I got out. Um, and I think that's just a testament to how amazing Thief is. It's a 35-year-old movie. Oh, yeah. It's, it is incredible. It really, really is. And it's is. the best film I've watched all year. So. Yeah. <laughs> so what we'll do is, like I say, we'll continue on with that. I mean, there may be some weird scenario somewhere down the line that a movie is better than both that we come back together on. But failing that, which I doubt. Uh, Will, fail- Smith, Will Smith really needs to pull it out of the bag if he's going to convince me. As <laughs> memory serves, I don't hate Ali. I haven't um, seen it, so you've know. never seen it. I don't hate it. No. I, I, I remember I had some some issues with it. I just can't remember what they were because I remember when it came out. And I remember going to see it, but I've only ever seen it once. Um, yeah. I've not seen Collateral in many many years, but Collateral, I've seen it for, once. Collateral seen for me was a thumping strong movie. So yeah, that you know that's still to come up, and the Insiders coming up next week, which is one which I think is wholly underrated. Um, when people talk about Michael Mann altogether, it's one that a lot of people don't even know he directed, which is... Yeah, I mean, that'll be my first watch of that. Never seen that. So much stuff to do. Right, we're going to take a very short break just now. When we come back, we are closing out the show after some promos right after this. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. (laughs) And I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com. Dot com and doomedmoviethon.com Hello, hello This is the Doom Show Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava It's the Doom Show Hello, hello This is the Doom Show Slashers, G.I. Low and Horror And you've been listening to Opera Omnia episode number 5 where we look at Michael Mann's Heat from 1995 That was everything I wanted it to be and so much more Andy Blockley so much more so much to talk about in that movie this is probably the longest episode we've ever done and it probably will be the longest episode we do do um, you said do do there's so much scope and depth to that movie there's so many characters there's so many little story arcs everything little plot lines oh, it's just like it is a fucking great film it really is and I'm glad to have watched it again because it's been a good few years um, yeah he, get it watched watch it twice yeah, watch it twice. Um, we have, um, obviously, the day this episode is dropping, um, we've been doing the math, which means that our next episode, episode number six, which is looking at The Insider from 1999, will be landing sometime in the overall festive period. Uh, so it'll either be early, early in the new year or sometime I'll be sometime. I don't know when it'll be. Uh, but we're yep. going to enjoy our Christmas and our new year. Um Definitely. So, so we will be back with a with another episode looking at the insider real soon. But we have one more bit of business 
to get to. We, um, when I say we, uh, I unfortunately became incommunicado when Andy actually needed me <laughs> to, to run a competition. Yeah, and like, you do not leave me to, to try and deal with Facebook issues because I don't, just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, we ran a competition anyway on the previous episode to win Andy Blockley's only once ever watched copy of The Last of the Mohicans on Blu-ray. Um, and I believe we have a winner. Yeah, Michael McCloskey. <laughs> I asked if you want this. He said yes. So he gets this. Um, I also asked people to like and share the page, which you can't do because it's a closed group. Um, everybody that liked it went into the mix. Uh, I just picked a name at random uh, and it was Michael McCloskey. So well done, mate. Um, I'll message you probably before this episode. No, actually, we'll let him hear his one on the episode. Um, so you message me, buddy. Just give me a private message. Um, give me your address and I'll send this out to you. So well done. You've got a Blu-ray copy of Last of the Mohicans coming out to you. Um, lots of special features, commentary by Michael Mann. Watched only once. Well there done. you go. Congratulations, Michael. Right. Um, so like Andy said, this has been an incredibly long episode. I hope we have done justice to one of my favourite movies of all time, Michael Mann's Heat. You would think that now that we have perceived peaked um, on this list of Michael Mann movies that it would be all downhill from here and that's not the case at all we have some incredible movies to talk about and the next one like I say The Insider which is coming up has um, Academy, Academy Award winning uh, duo of Russell Crowe and um, Al Pacino it's worth saying not for The Insider um, but the, some heavyweight actors and actresses and a really compelling story which is actually based in real life so even though it's yeah, dramatised it's, it? it's just a story of like just corruption and how fucking corporations run the whole fucking place um, which is and something that, that me and Andy have strong beliefs in so you're gonna <laughs> strong beliefs um, and, uh, and it's just uh, sort of one of those cautionary tales isn't it you fuck with a corporation Ain't gonna win, mate. It's a bit like Mr. Burns with his big team of lawyers. So yes. uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a great film. We get that watched, so we can you can hear us talk about it in the next couple of weeks. Fantastic, fantastic. So there's nothing left for me to say, um, other than if we don't speak to you before, please have a fantastic Christmas and a great New Year. Um, and remember, and leave us some feedback and some love over on the iTunes. And um, huge love and support out to all our Legion podcast. Brethren, um, Andy, would you like to say goodbye to the listeners, please? Goodbye, listeners. Watch Heat twice. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>